0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. And our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Uh, today we are continuing, as far as I can tell, we are in episode five of our series of uh, the story that makes sense of our stories. Uh, it's been a wonderful opportunity. and if, In fact, if you've missed any of our, our messages, I encourage you to go back to our, our podcast online and, and listen to them. Uh, Barton has done a great job to sort of not only set the stage for this, but help us think through uh, a number of the different aspects of our humanity, of our experience, of our reality that we're challenged with, right? There's competing voices out and about as we, um, as we seek to best reflect uh, the character of God and uh, His Word to us. Today... Uh, we're going to talk about something that actually Barton sort of alluded to a couple of weeks ago when he talked to us about beauty. Uh, remember that? He talked about how the human experience of appreciating beauty, whether it's from beautiful music or whether it's from a beautiful painting or beautiful artwork, uh, or to the point uh, that's most important this morning for us is when we experience something beautiful in nature. All of us have had experiences like this, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, whether it's walking through a forest, whether it's even seeing some of the pictures as we saw earlier today in the the service of some of the wonderful aspects of of creation. Many of us, if maybe not, maybe all of us have had an experience of being moved, almost transported, right? I mean, how else do you describe these kinds of experiences, Uh, uh, transported to another realm by something external, something on earth. For me, it's been experiences like uh, walking through the highlands of Scotland or exploring the glowworm caves in New Zealand. You heard me right, glowworm caves. I I invite you to to look them up uh, after the service. Or or snowshoeing in uh, Alberta's Waterton National Park. These experiences have evoked in me such wonder, such awe, such transcendent happiness that I almost lose a sense of myself, right? Again, you know what I'm talking about. So the question that we have this morning as we continue our series, the question before us today is, what is my relationship to planet Earth? What does it matter that we have these experiences? To get us going, I'm going to talk to you about a couple books. Uh, And my my purpose in talking to you about these books isn't to talk about the content of the books, although I'm I'm sure these are really good. In fact, this one helped me um, a little bit for the message today. But I draw your attention to these books because I want to explain to you how I came about them. Both of these books were given to me by Phil and Martha Horton. They loaned me this book, And gifted this one to me. Now, if those of you who can see, you might notice there's a little um, bright colored sticky note sticking up from this one. Let me read uh, what it says to you. This book belongs to the Hortons. Okay. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking at this point, right? Well, why did they have to put it on a sticky note? Right? Why didn't they just write it in the first page like a normal person? Why did they have to put it in a sticky note? Aha, that brings me to this book. You don't see it, but inside this book is another brightly colored sticky note. And this is what it says. A gift from Phil and Martha Horton gives a date. And then in parentheses, it says, we don't like to mark up books. Smiley face, love that. So now you know. Now you know why there's a a brightly colored sticky note here. Now, what would you think of me if I took this book, the book that was loaned to me by the Hortons, and, and after really enjoying it, I took a pen, and I wrote inside the book. I said, uh, hey, Phil and Martha, thanks so much for lending me this book. I really enjoyed it, especially chapter one, and I kept writing and writing. You guys are awesome, and oh yeah, P.S., by the way, thanks for the other book as well. And, and I kept writing and writing, and I turned on the next page and kept writing more of my greetings, treating it kind of like a guest book at a resort or something like that, what would you think it'd be? Right? Well, I I hope you'd be offended by my action, right? I hope that uh, if if you heard me say this, especially in light of what I know from this book that they don't like to mark up books, that you would insist right on the spot that I ordered them a new one. So let me ask you this. If we get offended by something like this, how much more should we pay attention to how we are treating God's great gift to us, his creation? With this in mind, let's now turn to Genesis chapter 1, the foundational text for understanding the Judeo-Christian view the story of humans' relationship with the earth. There's nothing nothing too too tricky here. We read. Oh, oh first of all, I'm going to organize this. Sorry, thanks for the slide here. I'm going to organize the content into two uh, uh, pieces. The first piece is the content of our relationship with the earth. Right, the substantial the the. Um, uh, the, the parts of the story that give us the substance for a relationship with the earth. And then the next part, I'm going to talk about the context for a relationship with the earth. So how the content comes about, or what are the parameters for that, for the content, okay? Uh, so let's look at the content first, right? And as I said, nothing too tricky here. We read in verse 26, that provides us the first piece. We read, read this, let them have dominion. Right, So you know the context of, of this. You know the situation. This is God sort of declaring his intention for the creation of us, of the human race, of, of the human being. Even before he created us, even before he created them, he said, this is my intention. This is my purpose. This is what I desire for them to do, that they may have dominion. The relationship between the human and the earth on the Judeo-Christian story is one that is intentional and primordial. Even before creation, right at the very beginning, this whole story tells us, God's intention is declared that we would have dominion. Nothing special about how the word dominion is used here. It means rule or lordship. That's it. We need to recognize this. And not shy away from it, especially considering some of the other stories out there that consider this kind of language as offensive. I'll get to those stories shortly. But here in verse 26, God intentionally establishes the human being in a leadership role with regard to the earth and everything in it, right? Notice the text uh, explains the purview or the constituency of humanity's dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air over the cattle over all the wild animals of the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps upon the earth from the outset the point of establishing the human being god's dominion is explicit and uh, is explicitly declared so the other facet of the judeo christian content of humanity's relationship with the earth is God's instruction in verse 28. The instruction is this. Be fruitful and multiply, fill, subdue, and again, have dominion. God then, after kind of declaring that, they are, that uh, his desire is for us to have dominion, he then explains the direction of this relationship for the human being. He instructs humanity to multiply. That is, reproduction is a part of our explicit responsibility. Fill, responsible to spread out over the surface of the earth. Subdue, make those places uh, habitable. And once again, to exercise rule. Right, now, some of you might be cringing to yourself a little bit at this point. What are you talking about? This is exactly what got us into the problems that we're facing now. Climate change, extreme poverty, overpopulation, and endangering of animal species. Is this really the Judeo-Christian story? If it is, I'm not sure I can buy into this part of it. I mean, the last few weeks have been good, right? But I might be interested in some of the other stories instead this time. Okay, let's do that. Let's look at some other stories, but let me remind you, I'm not finished with the Judeo-Christian story, okay? But let's pause here and intentionally pause here. I'll explain why a little bit later. So what about the other stories that are available to us at this point? Well, for explanatory purposes, I've grouped these stories into two very broad and oversimplified characteristics. I apologize to you who know or are familiar with the details of these worldviews, but I needed to start somewhere. So here we go. I want to ever so briefly touch on seven stories with conclusions about the nature of the relationship between the human being and the earth. And I will present them to you in two categories based on what they conclude about the nature of the earth. Group one concludes that the earth is real. Group two concludes that the earth is illusory, or at best, a reflection of what is really real. So first, group number one. This, uh, the group of stories that share this conclusion all look at the earth as something very important but have different reasons why the earth is important. The first member is scientific materialism. On this story, the earth is not only real, but its relationship with humanity is such that it reveals knowledge about itself. It is such a thing, and humans are such uh, uh, that we are able to interact in such a way to discover the way in which the earth is, the way in which reality exists. Over the course of time, humanity has been able to organize this information into very large groups, such as biology, the the general study of all life, botany, the study of plants, zoology, the study of animals, chemistry, the study of the chemical components of the earth, and physics, the study of the way in which these various systems interact with each other. The knowledge gained over the centuries is, uh, over the centuries is stunning. Scientific materialism, however, also claims that humanity is an accidental tourist on the Earth; that there is no ultimate purpose to the knowledge acquisition, because ultimately the Earth will be destroyed, most likely by the death of its nearest uh, star. Now, while this event is not for an estimated five to ten billion years. It is, nonetheless, inevitable. There's nothing we can do for the earth in light of its ultimate destiny, but the information we gain before this catastrophic extinction event is still amazing. And we owe it to ourselves and to those who come after us to learn all we can. Why? Well, because we can The next group of views, uh, the next group that views the earth as something real, is what I'll lump together as paganism. This story tells us that the earth is very special because, in some way, it is divine. The nature of the relationship between humanity and the earth is thus of that between a god and a supplicant. We, our response to the earth as human beings, is simply to worship it, and that is our responsibility because it has given rise in some divine way to all life as we know it. Maybe in this you can hear echoes of views like Hinduism, some native religions, Wicca, and other neo-pagan groups. Ultimately, because it is divine, the earth, or at least what we consider the earth, will go through an eternal number of births and rebirths. There's nothing we can do or need to do uh, other than worship it. In fact, in truth, for some in this collection, there is no real distinction between the earth and humanity. We're all one and the same. I've classified the final group that views the earth as something really there for humanity. I've classified it as hedonism. Broadly speaking, this story tells us that there is a purpose to all we see and taste and touch and hear and feel. And that purpose is human pleasure. This group would also include the group that we read about in the Bible called Epicureanism, who held a similar view, but one that was a little less satisfying. This, the main idea is the same. The earth and all it contains is there for the pleasuring of our senses. But the, at the extremity of this story, humanity has the right to use the earth for pleasure, even at the expense of the earth itself. On this story humanity is defined by the individual human being and thus the individual can determine what is enjoyable for herself. There's little to no sense of responsibility to anyone but oneself. And so as long as you're enduring life as long as you're enjoying life that is the highest good. Okay. That's the first category. The second category views the earth as not really real. Um, Now, those of you who know these stories know that they can be quite difficult to understand. Uh, But they're important to address because I think some of the ideas from these stories actually have seeped into some of our thinking about uh, as Christians. That is, parts of the Judeo-Christian story have been exchanged by some of these ideas. I'll try to point that out in just a little bit. The first group makes a stronger claim about the earth. In fact, it makes a claim about not just the earth, but all material reality. It's not real. This group is characterized by Buddhism, which teaches that there are four truths. There are four truths uh, to reality. Life is incapable of satisfying, and thus is suffering to us. The cause of this suffering, the second truth, the cause of this suffering is our attachment or desire for life. In other words, we just kind of keep going on and on after these things that don't ultimately satisfy the great irony of existence for them. Uh, this, the third truth is the way to stop suffering is to stop clinging to these things that we believe will satisfy. And finally, the final truth is that the way to stop clinging to life as, we, um, as it appears is to follow their eightfold path. And I'll leave you to research that path if you are curious. The point is that we appear to ourselves to be a, a separate part of life, but in fact, we're not really, because what is real is not what appears real to us. Are you following? This is, t- this is uh, uh, difficult in, in many respects. As humans, we must therefore detach ourselves from cares and desires, things that keep us tied to the earth. A related group actually is making a a resurgence over the last few years, and that's Stoicism. Stoicism, another story mentioned in the Bible, teaches that human beings must free ourselves from the negative effects of life on earth. We do that, again, by working at it ourselves, by developing wisdom necessary to live a virtuous life, no matter what comes our way, even death. It doesn't matter. For the Stoic, while there's a kind of reason in the background of life on earth, there's also fate. And the irresistible relationship between reason and fate results in a life and experience that may or may not make sense. The other group that treats the earth as if it's something that's not really real, is Platonism. Plato, the great student of Socrates and teacher of Aristotle, who lived in the 4th century BCE, taught that the world that we observe is at best a shadow of what is really real. The material of the earth and the rest of material reality is a poor medium for the truth of what is really real, or what Plato referred to as the Forms. Our problem is that we take for granted what is presented to our senses as true, when in fact, if we just thought hard enough, we would realize that, that uh, all we are looking at are shadows of what is really real or the ideal forms. We can learn to see this if we think hard enough to remember the eternal knowledge that is present deep down in all of us. We can recall something about the real through that which is not really real, the earth, and all that it contains, but the things we recall from those we observe are not real in and of themselves. We're living in a bit of an illusion. The key then on this story is to escape the illusion or the material world. Another version of this story is found in Gnosticism, which plagued early Christianity and continues to plague it now. Like the Platonist, the Gnostic held that knowledge is the key to finding release from the illusion of this world. But in the case of the Gnostic, the knowledge is a secret, revealed only to the initiated. The goal goal for both the Platonist and the Gnostic is once again to find release from the illusion of the material world. So the mind, or the spirit of humanity, uh, or the the mind, or the spirit of humanity is good, and the physicality of the world, including that which ties us to the earth, the body, is bad. We need to escape the material into the light of the spiritual realm, or the realm of the ideal forms. Does this kind of sound familiar? Maybe you've heard something similar, but using more Christian-sounding words. Those who are saved escape the judgment of this world by escaping it into heaven. Now, before, I'll deal with that piece in a little bit, but before I do, let's take stock of where we're at. Because there's been a lot of ideas, a lot of things that I've shared so let me summarize here. First, we heard part of the Judeo-Christian story about the relationship between humanity and the earth. One that emphasizes dominion and subduing. These sorts of things, in light of the desperate challenges we are facing, seem a little hollow. Then we looked at stories that seem to present some more positive or encouraging aspects. Scientific materialism recognizes the communicative aspect of the material universe. It is speaking, declaring information about itself. It is rational. Paganism senses something special about the earth and evokes a sacredness from its deeply mystical and awe-inspiring nature. Hedonists derives pleasure from the earth. Buddhist stoicism identifies abiding challenges to humanity that appear implicit in the nature of the earth that seems to prohibit the flourishing of humanity. Platonic gnosis suggests that humanity is meant for something more, that there's something more needed for human flourishing beyond the material world in which we find ourselves in. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. With each of these positive aspects of these views are front and center. These same positive views are front and center in the Judeo-Christian story. Knowledge, the sacred, pleasure, challenges within, and meant for something more are all there for the Christ follower. The difference, of course, is the object. Knowledge is not just about the word, but of God. The sacredness of the earth is not due to the earth itself, but as a platform to worship the creator. The challenges within have been overcome by Christ and will ultimately be overcome by God, who will renew the earth, and indeed, we are meant for something more. But within the wonderful creation, that, as we heard from Genesis 1, is very good. However, maybe you also sensed some of the abiding challenges of these stories. Scientific materialism cannot offer hope. Paganism cannot offer anything beyond just accepting the earth. Hedonism cannot justify anything good beyond individual proclivities. Buddhism and Platonism seek only to escape the earth as if it was a doomed vessel. So now it's time to get us back into the Judeo-Christian story of Genesis 1, 26 to 31. So let's look at the context. Right, what, under, under what are the circumstances under which we are to have dominion, humanity to have dominion, and to subdue the earth in the ways that we talked about earlier. So first, let's take a look at Verse 26. Even before God declares his intention for humanity, even before that, he says this, let's make man in our image. Here, all I want to point out is that on the Judeo-Christian story, before being given the opportunity to have dominion and subdue humanity, you and I are imbued with the means to reflect A God who is by virtue of his nature, um, uh, he is the one who has ultimate dominion. But we're the ones who are supposed to reflect his character as his special image bearers. This is the paradigm. This is the example that we must appeal to for our having dominion. So this this is the purpose for us having dominion and subduing. Or as uh, Drew Johnson explains, the image of God gives humanity both a different status, right, to have dominion and subdue. We talked about that, to have different status, but also the culpability among the creature, the creatures uh, in the world. In other words, God's given a special responsibility to bear His image to creation, and His image to bear His nature. To bear his character, to treat the earth, to treat creation in the same way that God treats us. Sometimes the Christian story emphasizes the uniqueness of humanity in terms of creation. And it should, but it does so sometimes at the expense of the responsibility entailed by that uniqueness. It's not appropriate to conclude that since I have the image of God, whatever I do reflects his nature. It seems kind of ridiculous for me to even say that, but I fear sometimes we unwittingly fall into that habit. There is an ethic, an ethical characteristic about being God's image bearers, or or a proper way of being God's image bearers. And to help us understand how to approach being God's image bearers on earth, Genesis also reminds us, in verse 31... That God saw everything that he had made. Everything that he had made. And what was it like? It was very good. One translator says, and it was exceedingly good. And we've all, this is what we've experienced, right? In our interactions with nature, on those walks, on those hikes, in those explorations that we've had, we've experienced the exceedingly good nature of God's creation, This is God's planet. He declared it to be very good. That is his valuation, and nothing has changed. Granted, instead of filling the earth and reflecting God's image, instead of filling the earth with God's glory as his image bearers, we have instead filled it with violence. And the earth has become polluted. But, as Ian Proven concludes, even in light of the problems in this world, the world that is created by the personal God is never regarded by biblical faith as a problem to be overcome. It is good. There are problems that arise within the world, to be sure. These must be overcome. And as Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen further explain, this is a bit of a longer one, but I think it's helpful for us. Genesis 1, 26 to 31, clearly identify humankind's vocation of rule or dominion over creation, not as tyrannical exploitation of nature, but as careful stewardship, right? Based on the character of God. God acts for the good of creation and not for selfish pleasure. God creates a perfect home for humankind. And at every point in God's work, Genesis describes the creation as good and very good. Over this good creation, God calls the human ruler to serve as steward or under sovereign rule over the earth. It is impossible to read this as suggesting that humans are free to do what they like with God's workmanship. Above all things, human caretakers are accountable to the divine creator for the world entrusted to their care. This is why I stopped partway through the Judeo-Christian story. I fear some of us choose to stop there. And if so, we need to hear how wrong that is. As his image bears, we have the responsibility to demonstrate that image in a way, and the way we live and act, and what we expect. Now, what should we expect? That is, what does God intend to do with the planet? Here, let me quickly summarize the ideas of theologian Richard Middleton. Middleton is concerned that the Christian hope has constantly been understood as a hope for human fulfillment in another world, heaven, rather than as hope for the eternal future of this world in which we live. To clean this up, Middleton looks to Scripture. Let me touch on a few passages. For instance, in Matthew 19, Jesus explains that at the end, the end of time, We should expect a renewal of all things in verse 28. Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 3 verse 21 that Jesus' return will be, and I quote, the time of universal restoration that God pronounced long ago. Now, where did he pronounce that? Where did he announce that? In places like Isaiah 55, where we read that the mountains and the hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands, they look forward to their time of rejoice of restoration. In the New Testament letters, we also read of God's intent to reconcile all things to Himself through Christ. In places like First Corinthians or sorry Colossians and Ephesians, both chapter ones. And of course, in Romans 8.21, we read the promise that creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay. This text echoes Hosea 4, which reveals the reason that the land mourns is because the Lord has has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. His image bearers have betrayed him. Certainly, the Bible is full of poetic passages that that describe the uh, apocalyptic nature of the judgment of God, and that judgment will proceed to eradicate evil from the earth. But the focus of that judgment in the Judeo-Christian story is the recalcitrant human being, not the created universe. Turning turning again to Bartholomew and Goheen in conclusion, we read this. The biblical story describes this world as a marvelous home prepared for humankind, a place in which men and women and children may live and thrive and enjoy the intimate presence of companionship of the creator himself. The Judeo-Christian story of humanity's relationship with the earth provides us hope that God's intention is to restore the goodness of his creation, including you and I. This is the thing with the Judeo-Christian story. It's about so much more than a particular issue, such as our relationship with the earth. The particular issue provides the means by which you and I can come in contact with God. The God of the universe who not only cares deeply about this planet because he crafted it, and not only about humanity in general because we share his image, but he calls out to you and me as individuals with an invitation This invitation is God's love and favor that we don't deserve, but that calls us back to him to be reconciled to him, to each other, and to help reclaim his creation. He sealed that invitation through the life and death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. If you have not responded to the invitation to reconcile with our loving and mighty creator, now is your opportunity Today is the day. Don't put it off any, any longer. This is the first step in restoring humanity's proper dominion over the earth as God's image bearers to be reconciled with the one who made us in the first place. God demonstrated his love for us through Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who defeated death, and who is the only one able to lead us through this life into the life full of glory, the the full glory of humanity and creation in proper orientation with our creator. How we live affects the earth. If If you were offended by the by my imagined treatment of the Hortons books, we should be that much more offended by our abuse of God's great and marvelous creation. This should not be a surprise. We should not have to wait for the details, the surveys, the the analysis of, uh, of, uh, in scientific terms, it should not be a surprise because it's found in the very nature of the created order itself. Humanity is commissioned by God as his special image bearers to be Earth's caretaker, reflecting God's character as his image bears. So, I'll invite the music team back up as we uh, prepare to conclude our, our time together. And as they come back, here's one question for you to think about, for us, all of us, to think about. What is one thing that you, that I can do in your life, in your daily habits, that you can change in order to demonstrate godly care of the earth. As Christians, our story tells us that you and I are responsible. Even before we analyze specific details, even before we hear from the scientists and philosophers who are telling us that we are facing some deep trouble, before all of that, God tells us that right from the very, very beginning, worked right into the purpose of the, crea- of the creation of humanity, is responsibility. Have dominion? Subdue? Yes. But do so on the basis of the image of God. Reflecting God's nature and character. To treat everything with its original nature. And God saw that he had made everything... And that it was very good. Let's pray. Creator God, we are humbled in the face of your creation. We are humbled at the glory that your creation emanates. In those moments, Father, In those moments of of, uh, sublime experience where we get a taste of that glory, Father, we are grateful. And you take us, you demonstrate in those moments this wonderful, exceedingly good nature of creation, this planet that you've made for us as a home, as a platform for us to worship and glorify you. You are the God of all wonders. You are the God of all majesty. You are the God of all dominion for you've created all things. And God, you have made us to bear your image to that creation. To reflect this character, this loving care, this loving, powerful care of the created order for your sake and for your glory. This wonderful creation ultimately is yours. You are majestic, and are greater than the universe. And we thank you, we worship you, we bow before you. Father, may you help us, strengthen us to demonstrate this glory, this majesty, this wonder in the way we live, to honor you and to to reflect the work that Christ has done to reconcile all things to you. In his name we pray.
0: If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.